0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, two stories about our perception of time. First, the same brain cells that track locations in space appear to also count beats in time. New research suggests that our thoughts may take place on a mental, space-time canvas. Then, in our second segment, Nobel Prize winner and columnist Frank Wilczek discusses time's almost-reversible arrow. First, New Clues to How the Brain Maps Time, by Emily Singer. Our brains have an extraordinary ability to monitor time. A driver can judge just how much time is left to run a yellow light. A dancer can keep a beat down to the millisecond. But exactly how the brain tracks time is still a mystery. Researchers have defined the brain areas involved in movement, memory, color vision, and other functions, but not the ones that monitor time. Indeed, our neural timekeeper has proved so elusive that most scientists assume this mechanism is distributed throughout the brain with different regions using different monitors to keep track of time, according to their needs. Over the last few years, a handful of researchers have compiled growing evidence that the same cells that monitor an individual's location in space also mark the passage of time. This suggests that two brain regions, the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex, both famous for their role in memory and navigation, can also act as a sort of timer. In research published in November 2015, Boston University neuroscientist Howard Eichenbaum and collaborators showed that cells in rats that form the brain's internal GPS system, known as grid cells, are more malleable than had been anticipated. Typically, these cells act like a dead reckoning system, with certain neurons firing when an animal is in a specific place. The researchers who discovered this shared the Nobel Prize in 2014. Eichenbaum found that when an animal is kept in place, such as when it runs on a treadmill, the cells keep track of both distance and time. The work suggests that the brain's sense of space and time are intertwined. The findings help to broaden our understanding of how the brain's memory and navigation systems work. Perhaps both grid cells and other GPS-like cells aren't tuned only to space, but are capable of encoding any relevant property, time, smell, or even taste. It probably points to a broad thing the hippocampus does, said Lauren Frank, a UC San Francisco neuroscientist who studies memory and the hippocampus. It figures out the relevant access for encoding experiences and then uses the cells to map those experiences. These maps in turn construct a framework for memory, providing an organizing system for our never-ending series of past experiences. The hippocampus is this grand organizer of memories in space and time, Eichenbaum said. It provides a spatiotemporal framework onto which other events are applied. To study how the hippocampus monitors time, scientists train rats to run on a wheel or tiny treadmill. This setup holds the animal's location and behavior constant so that researchers can focus on the neural signals linked to time. Rats are too fidgety to sit still, so running helps standardize their normally twitchy behavior. Electrodes implanted deep in the brain record when different cells fire. In Eichenbaum's experiments, a rat runs on the treadmill for a set period, say 15 seconds, and then gets a reward. As the animal repeats the cycle over and over, its brain learns to track the 15-second interval. Some neurons fire at one second, others at two seconds, and so forth, until the 15 seconds have elapsed. Each cell will fire at a different moment in time until they fill out the entire time interval, Eichenbaum said. The code is so accurate that researchers can predict how long an animal has been on the treadmill just by observing which cells are active. Eichenbaum's team has also repeated the experiment, varying the treadmill speed to make sure the cells aren't simply marking distance. Some of the cells do track distance, but some seem linked solely to time. Although these neurons, dubbed time cells, are clearly capable of marking time, it's still not clear how they do it. The cells behave rather like a stopwatch. The same pattern of neural activity repeats every time you start the clock. But they are more adaptable than a stopwatch. When researchers change the conditions of the experiment, For instance, by extending the running duration from 15 to 30 seconds, cells in the hippocampus create a new firing pattern to span the new interval. It's like programming the stopwatch to follow a different time scale altogether. Moreover, time cells rely on context. They only mark time when the animal is put into a situation in which time is what matters most. When other variables come into play, the same cells behave differently. Allow a rat to explore a new environment, for example, and these same cells will map themselves to space. A particular cell will fire every time the animal is in a specific location, rather than doing so at a certain time. Eichenbaum's work dovetails with a 15-year trend in neuroscience research that suggests the hippocampus is more flexible than scientists expected. Researchers traditionally thought of it as a map maker Place encoding cells were discovered 40 years ago, but growing evidence suggests that it can encode other types of information as well. According to the newest picture, place cells can map not just space, but other relevant variables. Time is one of them, but others are possible. For example, a wine taster might have a space of wine tastes and smells, Frank said. But many scientists still view the hippocampus as a largely spatial structure. According to their argument, neural circuitry evolved to keep track of location, and everything else is just recorded on top of it. The hippocampus provides a code that is fundamentally spatial in nature, said Bruce McNaughton, a neuroscientist at UC Irvine. Eichenbaum's findings challenge this viewpoint, but they don't bury it. What's definitely clear is that place cells can represent information beyond place, said David Foster, a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University but what's less clear is whether they can code for the pure passage of time. In the timed treadmill experiments, the rats appear to be doing something very much like counting, but are these cells marking the passage of time itself, or are they responding to something else that merely looks like time? We don't know the driving principle that tells cells to fire at a specific point, but I don't think it's time, said Eva Pastelkova, She's a neuroscientist at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genelia Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia. It's not precise enough. They are not like ticking clocks. NYU neuroscientist Yuri Buzaki, whose lab did some of the first experiments exploring how the hippocampus tracks time, proposes that rather than monitoring time itself, these cells are doing something else, remembering a path through a maze or plotting the animal's next move. Both memories and future plans unfold in time, so time cells may simply reflect this mental activity. That's the number one problem for me. Are there dedicated neurons in the brain doing nothing else but keeping track of time, Buzaki said? Or do all neurons have functions that happen in sequential order, which for the experimenter can be translated into time? Pujaki points out that it may not even make sense to think of hippocampal cells as independently coding for space or time. The human brain often considers time and distance interchangeably. If one asks how far New York is from LA, the answers you get vary. 3,000 miles, 6 hours by flight, he said. In older language, distances were typically given by time, the days it takes to go from one valley to another, since it was not distance, but the number of sunsets, that was easy to calculate. For Bujaki, the issue goes beyond neuroscience and reaches into physics. Physicists consider space-time as a cohesive, four-dimensional entity, a fabric upon which the objects and events of the universe are embedded. Neuroscience must converge back to the old problem of physics. Are there place and time cells? Or is there only a single time-space continuum representation in the brain, Bujaki said. Eichenbaum is less concerned with these abstract questions. His goal is to unpack the role time plays in forming memories. When you recall what you did this morning, you remember events in the order in which they occurred, he said. How does the hippocampus organize memories in time? People with damage to the hippocampus often can't make new memories the famous patient H.M., who had a lobotomy to remove much of that part of the brain, introduced himself to his doctor over and over again each day. But these patients also have trouble remembering the sequence of words or objects presented in an experiment. How does the hippocampus support the ability to remember the temporal order of a sequence of events, Eichenbaum said. Eichenbaum envisions time cells as providing a timeline onto which sequential events are attached to represent an experience. If memories are a movie, he said, time cells are what puts the individual frames in order. His team is planning experiments that will intersperse time delays with different events to see how time cells modify their code to remember the order in which the events occurred. I don't think the hippocampus is a clock, he said, but it's using a clock to map out when things happened in a memory to keep them in order. Second, Time's Almost Reversible Arrow by Frank Wilczek. Few facts of an experience are as obvious and pervasive as the distinction between past and future. We remember one, but anticipate the other. If you run a movie backwards, it doesn't look realistic. We say there is an arrow of time, which points from past to future. One might expect that a fact as basic as the existence of time's arrow would be embedded in the fundamental laws of physics. But the opposite is true. If you could take a movie of subatomic events you'd find that the backwards in time version looks perfectly reasonable or put more precisely the fundamental laws of physics up to some tiny esoteric exceptions as we'll soon discuss will look to be obeyed whether we follow the flow of time forward or backward in the fundamental laws time's arrow is reversible Logically speaking, the transformation that reverses the direction of time might have changed the fundamental laws. Common sense would suggest that it should, but it does not. Physicists use convenient shorthand, also called jargon, to describe that fact. They call the transformation that reverses the arrow of time, time reversal, or simply T and they refer to the approximate fact that T does not change the fundamental laws as T-invariance or T-symmetry. Everyday experience violates T-invariance, while the fundamental laws respect it. That blatant mismatch raises challenging questions. How does the actual world, whose fundamental laws respect T-symmetry, manage to look so asymmetric? Is it possible that someday we'll encounter beings with the opposite flow, beings who grow younger as we grow older? Might we, through some physical process, turn around our own body's arrow of time? Those are great questions, and I hope to write about them in a past-future posting. Here, however, I want to consider a complementary question. It arises when we start from the other end, in the facts of common experience. From that perspective, the puzzle is this. Why should the fundamental laws have that bizarre and problem-posing property, T-invariance? The answer we can offer today is incomparably deeper and more sophisticated than that we could offer 50 years ago. Today's understanding emerged from a brilliant interplay of experimental discovery and theoretical analysis which yielded several Nobel prizes. Yet our answer still contains a serious loophole As I'll explain, closing that loophole may well lead us as an unexpected bonus to identify the cosmological dark matter. The modern history of T-invariance begins in 1956. In that year, T.D. Lee and C.N. Yang questioned a different but related feature of physical law, which until then had been taken for granted. Lee and Yang were not concerned with T itself, but with its spatial analog, the parody transformation p. Whereas t involves looking at movies run backward in time, p involves looking at movies reflected in a mirror. Parody invariance is the hypothesis that the events you see in the reflected movies follow the same laws as the originals. Li and Yang identified circumstantial evidence against that hypothesis and suggested critical experiments to test it. Within a few months, experiments proved that p invariance fails in many circumstances p-invariance holds for gravitational, electromagnetic, and strong interactions, but generally fails in the so-called weak interactions. Those dramatic developments around p-non-invariance-stimulated physicists to question t-invariance, a kindred assumption they had also once taken for granted. But the hypothesis of t-invariance survived close scrutiny for several years. It was only in 1964 that a group led by James Cronin and Valentin Fitch discovered a peculiar tiny effect in the decays of K mesons that violates T invariance. The wisdom of Joni Mitchell's insight, that you don't know what you've got till it's gone, was proven in the aftermath. If, like small children, we keep asking why, we may get deeper answers for a while, But eventually we will hit bottom when we arrive at a truth that we can't explain in terms of anything simpler at that point we must call a halt in effect declaring victory that's just the way it is but if we later find exceptions to our supposed truth that answer will no longer do we will have to keep going as long as t-invariance appeared to be a universal truth it wasn't clear that our question asking why the fundamental laws are time-invariant was a useful one. Why was the universe t-invariant? It just was. But after Cronin and Fitch, the mystery of t invariance could not be avoided. Many theoretical physicists struggled with the vexing challenge of understanding how t invariance could be extremely accurate, yet not quite exact. Here, the work of Makoto Kobayashi and Toshihide Maskawa proved decisive. In 1973, they proposed that approximate t-invariance is an accidental consequence of other, more profound principles. The time was ripe. Not long before, the outlines of the modern standard model of particle physics had emerged, and with it a new level of clarity about fundamental interactions. By 1973, there was a powerful and empirically successful theoretical framework based on a few sacred principles. Those principles are relativity, quantum mechanics, and a mathematical rule of uniformity called gauge symmetry. It turns out to be quite challenging to get all those ideas to cooperate. Together, they greatly constrain the possibilities for basic interactions. Kobayashi and Muskawa in a few brief paragraphs, did two things. First, they showed that if physics were restricted to the particles then known, for experts, if there were just two families of quarks and leptons, then all the interactions allowed by the sacred principles also respect T invariance. If Cronin and Fitch had never made their discovery, that result would have been an unalloyed triumph. But they had, so Kobayashi and Muskawa went a crucial step further. They showed that if one introduces a very specific set of new particles, a third family, then those particles bring in new interactions that lead to a tiny violation of T-invariance. It looked, on the face of it, to be just what the doctor ordered. In subsequent years, their brilliant piece of theoretical detective work was fully vindicated. The new particles whose existence Kobayashi and Maskawa inferred have all been observed, and their interactions are just what Kobayashi and Muskawa propose they should be. Before ending this section, I'd like to add a philosophical coda. Are the sacred principles really sacred? Of course not. If experiments force scientists to modify those principles, they will do so. But at the moment, the sacred principles look awfully good. And evidently, it's been fruitful to take them very seriously indeed. So far, I've told a story of triumph. Our question asking why the fundamental laws are time-invariant, one of the most striking puzzles about how the world works, has received an answer that is deep, beautiful, and fruitful. But there's a worm in the rose. A few years after Kobayashi and Muskawa's work, Gerard Tuft discovered a loophole in their explanation of T invariance. The sacred principle allowed an additional kind of interaction, The possible new interaction is quite subtle, and Tuff's discovery was a big surprise to most theoretical physicists. The new interaction, were it present with substantial strength, would violate t-invariance in ways that are much more obvious than the effect that Cronin-Finch and their colleagues discovered. Specifically, it would allow the spin of a neutron to generate an electric field, in addition to the magnetic field it is observed to cause. The magnetic field of a spinning neutron is broadly analogous to that of our rotating Earth, though of course on an entirely different scale. Experimenters have looked hard for such electric fields, but so far they've come up empty. Nature does not choose to exploit Tuft's loophole. That is her prerogative, of course, but it raises our question anew. Why does nature enforce T invariance so accurately? Several explanations have been put forward but only one has stood the test of time. The central idea is due to Roberto Petche and Helen Quinn. Their proposal, like that of Kobayashi and Maskawa, involves expanding the standard model in a fairly specific way. One introduces a neutralizing field whose behavior is especially sensitive to Tuft's new interaction. Indeed, if that new interaction is present, then the neutralizing field will adjust its own value so as to cancel that interaction's influence. This adjustment process is broadly similar to how negatively charged electrons in a solid will congregate around a positively charged impurity and thereby screen its influence. The neutralizing field thereby closes our loophole. Peche and Quinn overlooked an important testable consequence of their idea. The particles produced by their neutralizing field, its quanta, are predicted to have remarkable properties. Since they didn't take note of these particles, they also didn't name them. That gave me an opportunity to fulfill a dream of my adolescence. A few years before, a supermarket display of brightly colored boxes of laundry detergent named Axion had caught my eye. It occurred to me that Axion sounded like the name of a particle and really ought to be one. So when I noticed a new particle that cleaned up a problem with an axial current, I saw my chance. I soon learned that Steven Weinberg had also noticed this particle independently. He had been calling it the Higlet. He graciously, and I think wisely, agreed to abandon that name. Thus began a saga whose conclusion remains to be written. In the Chronicles of the Particle Data Group, you will find several pages covering dozens of experiments describing unsuccessful axion searches. Yet there are grounds for optimism. The theory of axions predicts, in a general way, that axions should be very light, very long-lived particles whose interactions with ordinary matter are very feeble. But to compare theory and experiment, we need to be quantitative. And here we meet ambiguity because existing theory does not fix the value of the axion's mass. If we know the axion's mass, we can predict all its other properties. But the mass itself can vary over a wide range. The same basic problem arose for the charmed quark, the Higgs particle, the top quark, and several others. Before each of those particles was discovered, theory predicted all of its properties except for the value of the mass. It turns out that the strength of the axion's interactions is proportional to its mass. So as the assumed value for axion mass decreases, the axion becomes more elusive. In the early days, physicists focused on models in which the axion is closely related to the Higgs particle. Those ideas suggested that the axion mass should be about 10 kiloelectron volts, that is, about 1 50th of an electron's mass. Most of the experiments I alluded to earlier searched for the axions of that character. By now, we can be confident such axions don't exist. Attention turned, therefore, toward much smaller values of the axion mass and in consequence feebler couplings, which are not excluded by experiment. Axions of this sort arise very naturally in models that unify the interactions of the standard model. They also arise in string theory. Axions, we calculate, should have been abundantly produced during the earliest moments of the Big Bang. If axions exist at all, then an axion fluid will pervade the universe. The origin of the axion fluid is very roughly similar to the origin of the famous cosmic microwave background, or CMB, radiation, but there are three major differences between those two entities. First, the microwave background has been observed, while the axion fluid is still hypothetical. Second, because axions have mass, their fluid contributes significantly to the overall mass density of the universe. In fact, we calculate that they contribute roughly the amount of mass astronomers have identified as dark matter. Third, because axions interact so feebly, they are much more difficult to observe than photons from the CMB. The experimental search for axions continues on several fronts. Two of the most promising experiments are aimed at detecting the axion fluid. One of them, the Axion Dark Matter experiment, uses specially crafted ultra-sensitive antennas to convert background axions into electromagnetic pulses. The other, the Cosmic Axion Spin Precession experiment, looks for tiny wiggles in the motion of nuclear spins, which would then be induced by the axion fluid. Between them, these difficult experiments promise to cover almost the entire range of possible axion masses. Do axions exist? we still don't know for sure. Their existence would bring the story of time's reversible arrow to a dramatic, satisfying conclusion, and very possibly solve the riddle of the dark matter to boot. The game is afoot. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Bonu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.